Okay, well, we are continuing this evening in the Catechism on the section on obedience. Well, we'll be considering questions 48 and 49 tonight. But before we get to those two statements, I wanted to make a couple comments first on our ability to be obedient, and in that our relation to the moral law or the Decalogue, which is, which is what we've been studying the last three weeks. We've been looking at the moral law, the Decalogue, as we've been considering this topic of obedience over the past three weeks. And tonight we'll formally be, begin to consider it, at least, at least its preface. And before we think of obedience as Christians, we need to also consider our ability and our motivation to be obedient as well. So it is true that when a person becomes a Christian, they are set free, free from the bondage of sin and death. But that does not mean that we are free in the sense of being totally autonomous. Freedom isn't being able to do whatever it is that you want to do. Human beings, after all, are creatures, meaning that we have been created by God. Uh, we are creatures. God is the creator. He made us in his image, and we bear the image of God. We'll get into that more specifically when we get to the third commandment, actually. But even the very first man, before he sinned and he plunged himself and all of his posterity, all of humanity into the bondage of sin, he was not autonomous then. Even when Adam existed in the garden before sin entered into the world, when God created Adam and Eve, they were created with a purpose and for a purpose. We may think of how the Westminster Shorter Catechism puts it, actually, with its first question and answer and its catechism in the Shorter Catechism. And that question is, what is man's chief end? In other words, what is the ultimate purpose of mankind? And the answer it gives, I'm sure most of you already know, is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And the question for us really then is, how do we glorify God? How do we glorify God and enjoy him forever? The answer, being simplistic, is through obedience. Uh, for Adam in that garden temple, it was working in that garden, worshiping God and not eating from the tree that was forbidden. And then teaching the rest of humanity to do the same, which at that point was only Eve. Uh, there was a clear sense of moral obligation on the part of Adam as he walked, or as God walked with him there in that garden, which again was a type of temple, a place of worship. But that was before the fall. That was before sin entered into the world. And so when we think about us today, post-fall, glorifying and enjoying God, saying that we glorify God through obedience is a little simplistic. There needs to be more said about that. I say it's simplistic because uh, we need to take into consideration total depravity, uh, being dead in sin, the need for regeneration, uh, the need for being born again from being born of, above, uh, the standard of obedience that Yahweh, the creator, is right to demand, which of course we know is perfection. And that would point us in many ways to the perfect work of Christ. And how is it that believers are united to Christ in faith, are approved and accepted uh, based upon Jesus' obedience and righteousness? That all plays into how we glorify God and enjoy him today. It's necessary for us uh, to even glorify God and enjoy him forever because of the fall. We need to do that through Christ. But nevertheless, complexities aside, mankind owes unto God obedience by virtue of being his creature. He created for his purpose. The ability by which we do that with, the strength by which we pursue that, the motivation from which we labor to do so are all related questions. We may be reminded very early on even of Jesus's piercing and convicting words where he says in John 14, 21, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. So obedience even carries with it an aspect of love 
for, for Jesus. And thankfully, we're not left to wonder what those commandments are. Uh, let me remind you of an implication of being made in the image of God from the inspired words of the Apostle Paul. He wrote, um, this is in Romans 2. You could turn there with me, please. And as we, as we get there to Romans 2, uh, remember also that in Romans 1, the Apostle begins to build his case of mankind's problem and Yahweh's solution in the covenant of redemption. And in chapter 1, he mentions that mankind is aware of the truth of God. And by that, what is meant is that mankind is innately aware of who God is, what God is like, and what God even requires for obedience. But because of our unrighteousness and ungodliness, because of the fall in Adam and then our willful rejection of everything that is good and right, apart from the grace of God, we suppress that truth. And then we get to Romans 2, and we're given an even clearer statement on mankind's general knowledge of what God requires of his image bearers. We've talked about this before, theologically speaking. This is called the light of nature or natural law. Not, not um, the law of nature where we think of like gravity and things like that, but the, the light of nature or natural law. Culturally and even biblically, we simply refer to it as the conscience. We've mentioned before in this series how even our consciences can be different due to our different involvement with sin, something that can only be overcome by the power that the gospel provides even. But then we get to verse 12 in chapter 2. And here at this point, the Apostle Paul is making a case for natural law, which is nothing other than the work of the moral law written on the hearts of mankind. Note I say it's the work of the moral law written on the hearts of mankind, not the actual moral law itself. It's not what we're going to read here but at the work of the moral law written on mankind in general. And it's simply because we are made in his image. So he says this, this is beginning at verse 12. He says, For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. Let's pause there just for a moment. If we know our history and we know our Bibles, then we know what the Apostle Paul is speaking of here when he talks about the law. Yahweh entered into a covenant with the nation of Israel to bless them according to his sovereign purposes and to bring into his creation through them the only redeemer of mankind, the second Adam, uh, the son of God, Jesus Christ. And in this coming deliverer, there is going to be a covenant of grace. It's going to be the means by which anyone who has ever or will ever be saved is actually saved. And Yahweh carries along this promise of salvation in the promised Messiah by establishing covenants with Israel in time and in, time, in natural history for us from our standpoint. Which, and in all of these engagements, these covenants that God makes with this people, he is pointing to and revealing Jesus and the redemption that he would supply uh, through different sh types and shadows. The covenants that Yahweh entered into with Israel as a nation through Abraham, through Moses and David, it, they didn't promise eternal salvation unto mankind by virtue of those covenants themselves, but they carried along God's people and mankind in general, revealing God's character through special revelation. And part of that special revelation was the giving of the moral law. We call them the Ten Words or the Ten Commandments. More on that in just a moment. But we've been starting to speak about them over the last three Sundays even. And this giving of the law, the revealing of it in the Mosaic Covenant, it was something unique. It was something special. 
It was given only to the nation of Israel at that time. Now, you could be outside of the nation of Israel and come to Israel and then learn of these things. And Israel was even charged with carrying forth uh, these truths of God to the surrounding nations as well, being a light unto them. So it wasn't unique to Israel in that context. But, I mean, the point is that God didn't reveal his law the same way as he did to Israel with with Moses on Mount Sinai to people in Japan. He didn't do that to people in Southern America. It was only with Israel. And again, this was part of his covenant promises that he was going to bring the Messiah through, who is the only mediator between God and man. He's the covenant head of the covenant of grace. And we'll say some more about that in just a moment. But regardless of the giving of that law, the revealing of that law, the law still existed in creation already. I'm pretty sure Nick or Steve mentioned this in previous weeks even, but that the moral law is a reflection of God's character and his will for mankind, regardless if you've been saved or not. And so the Apostle Paul goes on to say then in Romans 2, he's picking it back up at verse 13. He says, For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. Now don't be confused here, okay? The Apostle Paul is not telling his hearers that if, that if they are doers of the law, then they will be justified. They can't do that. They're dead in sin. They're dead in Adam already. Adam is a covenant or federal head. Federal just means covenant. And he, he is the covenant representative of all mankind that is presently not saved and a part of that covenant of grace, which Christ is the head of that I mentioned just a moment ago. And so here, what the Apostle Paul is doing in Romans 2 at this point, He is condemning all of humanity under the law and the need to be or and the and the need then to have reconciliation through a different justifier, who of course is the Messiah, Christ Jesus. We'll get to that eventually as he moves through Romans. But then continuing on for us in verse 14, we read, For when the Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. So we read that sometimes Gentiles, people who are not national Israel, people who don't have the law revealed to them through special revelation, that is, sometimes by nature, Paul says, they do what the law requires. They do it by nature. They do it because they are made in the Imago Dei. They are made in the image of God. They sometimes do what the law requires. The moral law, then, we could say, is part of general revelation as well. It's part of what Roman 1 says is plain about God to us. And because of our sin, it is suppressed. And so what you see is you see the work of that law is written on the hearts of all humanity. Now, I mentioned all this before I address the two questions we have before us tonight, because I want to make the case that we best understand, or we at least best have a chance of rightly understanding the law when we see it in the context of covenant. That is even how the catechism is putting it forward to us, actually. The law of God exists in a general revelation sense, in that we, mankind, all of mankind, has the work of it written on our hearts, in our, in our conscience. And even so, mankind knows in some shape or form the difference between right and wrong. If anybody tries to say that that's not true, I mean, it's, it's objectively 
false to think that's not true. All you have to do is slap them in the face and take their wallet and they will automatically say, that's wrong. You can't do that. Well, why? It's not because all, all people got together and agreed upon it. No, some people want to do that. But it's wrong because God says these sorts of things are wrong. And so they have this in a general revelation sort of way. But what we have happening uh, with God because of his covenant promises is that he also reveals the moral law through special revelation. Uh, again, the law of God exists in a general, general revelation sense in that we, all of mankind, have the work of it written on our hearts, in our consciousness, in our conscience. And even in that aspect, it's actually given to us in the form of a covenant, uh, the covenant of works, in which Adam was our federal head, in which he failed to keep plunging himself and all of his uh, posterity, which is all of us, into bondage, into a state or condition of spiritual death and separation from God. The moral law, in a general revelation sense, was given to all humanity through the covenant that he made with Adam, that Adam failed to keep. This, the law, which is from God, which still demands obedience from us in that state, even though we don't fully know it, or even though we may not have special revelation, uh, you know, we don't receive it, or we don't desire it, it covenantly relates to humanity in two ways that Steve mentioned when he taught two weeks back. It exists simultaneously in condemning, in a condemning manner and in a preserving manner. It condemns in such a way that the Apostle Paul would say in 2 Corinthians 3, 6, that it is a letter of death, a letter that kills. It buries us under the weight of sin. And nobody can look at the law and say, oh, I can be right by meeting this standard. It's a letter of death in that regard. For the elect, it serves also then as a schoolmaster or a tutor that compels us to look to Christ as a righteous law keeper in our stead. So when the person who is chosen from God, who is shown the truth, when they're confronted with the law, they see it as some, it's something that God uses to crush us, to crush our pride, to humble us, to help us to see that we need someone who is able to fulfill this standard in our place because we so desperately cannot do it ourselves. And so also, it serves in a preservation manner in that it restrains evil across all societies so that we don't destroy each other and the elect will eventually reach salvation merited by Christ for them. The law of God preserves society, pre preserves uh, humanity just through the work of it being written on the consciences of men. And it's the reason why humanity just doesn't wipe itself out because this is a limit that God has given so as to accomplish his eschatological purposes, his plans of redemption in, the, in his son. <clears throat> and we see that coming. We see even the law existing in that context with humanity through a covenant as well, primarily through the covenant that God made with Noah, uh, but also even Adam as well. Though Adam was different than Noah because Adam theoretically could have earned eternal life for everyone had he obeyed. Adam didn't have to earn salvation, right? When he was in the garden before they sinned, he had to earn salvation. He had righteousness already. He had given to him from God. But he could have earned eternal life for himself and for everyone had he been obedient. But he failed under that moral obligation that he was under. Noah didn't have that opportunity. <laughs> Noah wasn't given the opportunity to live as a covenant head and represent everyone else uh, through his own obedience. Although Noah, through his obedience as a covenant representative, did preserve his household uh, through you know, the ark that was built. And again, that's pointing to Christ as well, too. But uh, 
Now, there's a third way that we should view the law of God in light of God's covenant. That would be the covenant of grace. Uh, Steve mentioned this as well recently, so two weeks ago if you were here. But it's what is often referred to as the golden use of the law. And in that, the law of God, the moral law, specifically the revealed moral law, what we would call the Ten Commandments, serves as a guide for us as Christians. A guide for us who are born again, who are regenerated, who are united to Christ in the covenant of grace. And it serves as a guide for us to keep us in pursuit of a holy life. Not because that is what saves us, but because God is holy and he desires for us to be holy. And because we love God and we want to enjoy him and glorify him forever, then we want to be what he has demanded and what he decrees for us to be. And so for those who are united to Christ through faith, we are free to keep the law, and we have good reason to do so. Again, not for our salvation, not to earn salvation, not to keep or maintain our salvation. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are active. All of them are active in saving us from start to finish. In the covenant of grace, though, we have true freedom, true freedom to do what we should do. Again, you know, sometimes we think of freedom as the ability to do whatever we want to do. But that's not really how the Bible understands freedom. Freedom is the ability to do what we ought to do, what we were created to do, which is to enjoy God and glorify him forever. That's, that's where real freedom is at for us. So I like what the Westminster Larger Catechism says on this topic. It's on that outline that I passed out. This is question 97 in their catechism. And it says, what special use is there of the moral law to the regenerate? Okay, so there's a, a special use of the moral law, the Ten Commandments, to those people who are born again. And the answer it gives, it says, Although they that are regenerate and believe in Christ be delivered from the moral law as a, excuse me, as a covenant of works, so that they are neither justified nor condemned, yet, besides the general uses thereof common to them with all men, it is of special use to show them how much they are bound to Christ for his fulfilling it, and enduring the curse thereof in their stead and for their good, and thereby to provoke them to more thankfulness, and to express the same in their greater care to conform themselves thereunto as the rule of their obedience. So you see what our Presbyterian brothers are confessing and teaching of Scripture on, the, on these matters, hopefully, is that the law doesn't justify or condemn the regenerate. We are justified in Christ, and therefore we cannot be condemned, right? Romans 8.1 uh, mentions that. But, and that is the moral law, is of special use to us is in that it grows our love and thankfulness of Christ for who he is and for what he has done and his keeping it as well as it serves as a rule for our own obedience, which would be the golden use of it, right? And so we say some of the same language in question 49 of the Baptist Catechism uh, as the Westminster Larger does there in question 97. But let's turn our attention to question 48 first. And let's open up to Exodus 20 now as well, too. So if you're in Romans, turn with me to Exodus 20. That's the Ten Commandments. Yep. That's what, so we've been dealing with the moral law, the Ten Commandments, introductory type lessons to it over the past three Sunday evenings. And tonight's having our focus set on the prep, what we would call the preface to it. The preface to it. Yes. So Exodus chapter 20, and we should maybe also I should mention now as well, too, that when we think of the law and the covenant that God administered it to in Israel, the law is more than just the moral law. 
all of the law is moral, of course, but in Israel, we see three separate distinctions and categories as well. We break it down by calling it moral, civil, and ceremonial. All three categories, civil, ceremonial, they're um, moral as well too. But our focus when we're thinking of obedience through the catechism is narrowing in not on those civil and ceremonial laws specifically, but on the moral aspect, which we call, again, the Ten Commandments. So more on that in just a moment. Um, the question for 48 in the Catechism says this, what is the preface to the Ten Commandments? Or in other words, what comes before the Ten Commandments? And the answer is the preface to the Ten Commandments is in these words, I am the Lord thy God, which have brought thee out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. And it cites Exodus 20, verse 2. Only one verse it cites. And I trust that you see that the answer that the Catechism is giving here is simply a quotation of Scripture. They haven't sought to write out the answer themselves and come up with their own theological musings on explaining what the answer is. They simply, God bless you, just quoted Exodus 20, verse 2. They could have um, also cited Deuteronomy 6, 5 for that matter, or 5, 6 for that matter. That's the exact same verse, no difference in it at all, but they chose to just stay here in Exodus 20, and that's fine. It's actually really interesting, though, and important that the Catechism is posing this question and noting that there is a preface to the Ten Commandments that the catechism is pointing this out here has something to do with the covenantal giving of the law that is important for us to know. And there's a few things of interest to know at this point, even though um, the question and answer is very direct at this juncture. And so I'm just going to list these in no particular order. I have three points to make based off of the reality that the catechism is noting. There is something that is preceding the giving of the moral law, the giving of these 10 words or 10 commandments. They're all important, but they're not like in any sort of order of importance or anything like that. And I actually had a little bit of fun this past week thinking through some of these things with a couple of brothers over at our sidewalk ministry. So it just it worked out interestingly well that we were able to talk about these things and then have to deal with this topic um, this evening. So the first point that I wanted to make about this is that there is a, a Catholicity, a, a Catholicity <clears throat> if I could get my own words out right now, a, a Catholicity to this section of Scripture. There is a Catholicity to this section of Scripture. Not a Roman Catholic bend. That's not what is meant by that word. That's not what Catholicity means. And actually, this is in opposition to Rome, as I'll show you here in just a moment. But there is a universal church acceptance and adherence to this se section of Scripture, is what I mean by that. A Catholicity to it. Meaning that it's not just the Reformed that see these Ten Commandments in the section which follows this verse. Uh, this verse being a part of it, prefacing it. But generally speaking, if you were to engage any Christian denomination today, even some of the people that we would call the Christian cults, like uh, the like Mormons or Adventists, things like that as well, they would know what you're talking about if you mentioned the Ten Commandments. The Roman Catholic Church would know what you mean by that as well. And of course, even a Hebrew who rejects Christ would recognize this portion of Scripture. There is a wide breadth to it. Uh, not everyone, though not everyone acknowledges that wrote, or Exodus 22 is a preface. More on that in just a second. Secondly, where did we actually get the notion that these are Ten Commandments? Our catechism doesn't offer any explanation for that. By the time um, the catechism was compiled near the very end of the 17th century, it was commonplace for this section of scripture be, to be known as the Ten Commandments. But you may have heard to it as referred to something else before, even here at this church, and that is the Ten Words. If we look just a couple chapters over in Exodus 34, 
Exodus 34, 27, uh, Scripture says that Yahweh spoke directly to Moses. And he was going to, he tells him these things. This is right after the incident with the golden calf, right? So Exodus 20, God gives Moses the law. He enters into this covenant. We call end up calling it the Mosaic covenant. It's an essential element of the old covenant. And while Moses is up there, he's up there by himself. The people of Israel are making this golden calf out of their jewelry. And they're worshiping it, saying it's the God who delivered them from Egypt, saying that it's Yahweh. And so that happens, of course, that God is not happy with that. Moses comes down, he breaks the tablets of stone, and then God instructs him to make two, uh, two more tablets. And so Exodus 34, uh, 27, he says this, he says, write these words for in accordance with these words, I have made a covenant with you in Israel. Again, we need to understand this in light of a, in light of covenant, because it's so important. And then in verse 28, we and, and again, what follows here, verse 27, is an essential part of the national covenant with Israel. Because Moses said, or God said to Moses in verse 27, write these words, for in accordance with these words, I have made a covenant with you in Israel. And then verse 28, so he was there with the Lord 40 days and 40 nights. He neither ate bread nor drank water, and he wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant, the 10, and actually so in my ESV it says commandments. But really, in the Hebrew, it's just the ten words. That's what it actually. That that's what that word is there in in Hebrew. Of course, ten words does not mean that they were literally only ten words on the tablet. Here, word means revelations or disclosures or sayings or perhaps best of all, really commandments. And from this, we didn't, we should infer though that the moral law is God's word. We're also reminded that God's law at this point in Exodus was a restatement to Israel and typological, meaning illustrate, it was illustrative and forward-looking clothing. Remember, the moral law didn't just appear de novo. It didn't just appear out of nowhere or out of the blue as it were at Sinai. We've seen before the moral law existed in God from all eternity. I think Nick mentioned that last week, I believe. It is a reflection and a revelation of his nature and character. Further, the law was revealed in creation. I've mentioned this already, but look how the Presbyterian puts it in Westminster Larger Catechism, question 92. I don't think I put this on your note sheet, but it says, well, this is the Westminster Catechism in question 92. It says, what did God at first reveal unto man as the rule of his obedience? And they say, the rule of his obedience revealed to Adam in the state of innocence and to all mankind in him, besides a special command not to eat from the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, was the moral law. The moral law was in the fabric of the created thing. Now we see this with God resting on the seventh day after creating for six days. Did God need to rest? Was God tired after creating everything that he created in the span of six days? He wasn't. But he does rest on the seventh day. And we'll, we'll find out soon enough when we go to the fourth commandment here in about a month or so's time about what the point of all that was. The point being here, though, that these ten commandments, these ten words, are words from God revealing God, revealing to us God himself. They were known via general revelation, but not so clearly. And so when we get to Exodus 20, they are revealed to Israel in a plain manner. And in Exodus 34, 28, Moses is told to write down these ten words. And in time, even for the Jewish people, which was a mixed covenant of true believers who loved Yahweh and possessed salvation via the covenant of grace, and others who were only in the national temporal covenants made with Abraham and Moses at this point, 
even they understood these 10 words as commandments. And we see that early on, even in, in early Jewish teaching. And the third thing to be aware of at this point is that even despite much agreement in this passage, the um, Catholicity of it, there are some important divisions that we should be aware of. Not everyone divides the Ten Commandments the exact same way. Uh, they've been ordered differently throughout history. The Jewish people recognize, and I put a little block on your note sheet. Hopefully it'll make this a little bit more clear. But the, the Jewish people recognize a preface to the Ten Commandments. But they combined what we call the first and second commandments into one commandment. The Roman Catholics actually went a different way with their dividing of the commandments. And this is a bit tricky because of the history of Christendom. So try and track with me here if you can. Um, the early church divided the commandments in the exact same way the Reformed do today. In the exact same way Baptists and Presbyterians and Reformed con congregations do today. So... Men such as Philo or Josephus or Origen, they all recognize a preface and then the Ten Commandments in the same ordering and the numbering that we do, as our catechism will list them, as we'll see over the next few months. But in 400 AD, and I have no comments on motivation for it this evening, Augustine makes a change to the number and to the church. The, the numbering... Um, and how it applies to the church. And because of his importance and because of his influence, uh, it is it changes things. It changes things for the church for a, quite a long time. And Augustine is a man who we should respect and value, by the way. I'm not trying to say something bad about Augustine. He was a man with the same spirit as us, working with the same set of scriptures that we have, wanting to glorify and honor God. But I don't think he was very helpful here. So anyways, what he did was he takes Exodus 20, verse 2, which is what we call the preface, and he makes it part of the first commandment. And they make what we call the first and the second commandment all one commandment. In other words, for us here as a confessional and covenantal Baptist tonight, if you identify as such, we see Exodus 22, verse 2, as the preface to the Ten Commandments, and then 20, verse 3, as the first commandment, and then 24 through 6 as the second commandment. For the church, though, from about 400 A.D. onward, they saw Exodus 20, 2 through 6, as the first commandment. And then they divided what we know as the 10th commandment into two commandments, uh, 9 and 10. So they broke down, whereas we have, and this is true for the Roman Catholic Church today, by my, mind you, um, where we have the first commandment is you shall have no other gods. And then the second commandment is you shall not make any idols. That's all sandwiched into one commandment for the Roman Catholic Church in addition to that preface being with it as well. And then they come on the back end and they take the command to you shall not covet uh, your neighbor's wife and they make that the ninth commandment. And the tenth commandment is you shall not covet your neighbor's house and donkey and manservant and all those other things. So they break down the, the you shall not covet into two different commandments. Hopefully that makes sense. Well, right before the dawn of the first century, there was a major schism in the church. They, the church um, got into a disagreement, a theological discussion over doctrine about the sons and, and the father sending the spirit. And the church broke into what we would call the East and the West. Eventually, the church in the West would, would become the Roman Catholic Church. The church in the East was the Eastern, or we call them now the Eastern Orthodox. There, it was a crazy time. There was two popes at this time. They were fighting against each other. I mean, it was a crazy time to be a Christian, I, I would think. And it was a mess. And then 
what the Eastern church did though is when they separated, they went back to the old way of viewing the commandments. And so they adopted the preface and they split uh, Exodus 23 as the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. And then they made Exodus 24 through 6, that they went back to seeing that as the second commandment rather than all just one commandment. And um, they fixed the commandment on coveting, turned it all into one as well too. Then comes the Reformation. And Luther, who is an Augustinian monk, he holds over Augustine's breakdown. But so the Lutherans today, their first commandment is a is a if we if we were to compare the Ten Commandments with us and Lutherans today, their first commandment is our first two commandments, whereas our tenth commandment is their ninth and tenth commandment. And so they, because I think because Luther was an Augustinian monk, he decided to stay with. Uh, his breakdown. But the rest of the reform sided with the Eastern Orthodox and the early church. And they use the breakdown that we currently use. Now, why does this matter? This is actually very important, especially in recognition of the preface of the Ten Commandments. And the reason for that is because it's a different kind of scripture. Exodus 22 is a different kind of scripture, a different type of biblical passage in Exodus 23, going through the rest of the commandments, actually, even as well. I'm not sure if you've heard this before, but you could break down all of scripture, and this is true of both the Old Testament and the New Testament, into two kinds of passages, either law or gospel. It's not to say that one is good and the other is bad. They are both good in their own right. Nevertheless, even they are related and uh, complementary, they are still distinct. A text is not both law and gospel. It is one or the other. And so what we have in 22 versus in comparison to 23 is a distinction between law and gospel. Generally speaking, law says, do this and live. Think of uh, Leviticus 18, where, where Yahweh is telling his people, if you, if you live this way, then you will be blessed. You will have life from that. Or in Luke 10, 28, with the rich young ruler, where he says, I've kept the commandments my whole life. And he says, yes, and you, sh and you will live by them if you do them. So there is a way in which we see the law for the believer, right? That's it's different than that. Uh, the law for the believer doesn't say do this and live. The law, again, shows us how we could honor and glorify God. But in contrast to what the law says when it says do this and live, the gospel says, excuse me, God has done this for you. It says Christ has done this on your behalf. It's the promises for good in scripture, which we don't deserve. Uh, Zacharias Ursinus, in his Summa Theologia, poses the question, in what does the law differ? In what ways does the law differ from the gospel? His contribution is good here, so I'm just going to read it at length for us. He says, the exposition of this question is necessary for a variety of considerations, and especially that we may have a proper understanding of law and the gospel, to which a knowledge of that in which they differ greatly contributes. According to the definition of the law, which says that it promises rewards to those who render perfect obedience, and that it promises them freely, insomuch as no obedience can be meritorious in the sight of God, it would seem that it does not differ from the gospel, which also promises eternal life freely. In other words, what he's saying is he's noting the inherent goodness of the law. The law is good still. It comes from a good God after all. But then he says, yet notwithstanding this seeming agreement, there's a great difference between the law and gospel. They differ, number one, as to the mode of revelation peculiar to each. 
the law is known naturally. Remember I was speaking earlier how the law is known in a general sense. The work of it is written on, on mankind, Paul says in Romans 2, uh, 15 and 14. The law is known naturally. The gospel, though, was divinely revealed after the fall of man. In a, secondly, in matter, uh, and it's a little bit more complex than that, because here's the law being revealed through special revelation, but it's not in a saving context. It's in a, it's in a context of uh, revealing himself to Israel, who is going to be used to bring about covenant promises in the person of Christ, who is the covenant of grace mediator. So secondly, it's in matter of doctrine. The law declares the justice of God separately considered. The gospel declares it in connection with his mercy. The law teaches what we ought to be in order that we may be saved. The gospel teaches, in addition to this, how we may become such as this law requires, viz. by faith in Christ. Thirdly, in their consideration or conditions or promises, the law promises eternal life and all good things upon the condition of our own perfect righteousness and of obedience in us. Which, that's not good news, right? Who in here tonight has a standard of perfect obedience in, on their own account? But then he says, the gospel promises the same blessings upon the condition that we exercise faith in Christ, by which we embrace the obedience which another, even Christ, has performed, has performed on our behalf. For the gospel teaches that we are justified freely by faith in Christ. With faith is also connected as by an insoluble bond, the condition of new obedience, which is getting to the heart of our question here. And then fourthly and lastly, he says, in their effects, law and gospel differ in their effects. The law works wrath and is the ministration of death. Again, that's 2 Corinthians 3. The gospel is the ministration of life in the Spirit in Romans 4.15. So careful theologians, wanting not to confuse justification and sanctification and good works, not wanting to confuse faith and obedience, all things that are related, mind you, desire to keep law and gospel distinct. So it's important that we do, friends, because not doing so, no matter how good our intentions are, it can lead to a shipwrecking of our faith. It can, if we, if we confuse law and gospel, it can turn us into legalists or antinomians. It can make us think that we have to, at some point, earn our place before God. And, you know, you don't want that. I don't want that as a, as a teacher. And so to say, to rightly say, I would argue, that Exodus 22 is a preface to the commandments and not part of the first commandment, as Rome would say, is to declare that believers especially have a special relationship to the law. Every, every person has a relationship to the law, right? By, our, by obligation of being made in the image of God, all people owe obedience to God. But believers, because we have been born again, because Christ has kept the law in our place, as our, as, and he's, our, he's a just justifier of us, the law has a special relation to us. Uh, that they are given to us in the context of redemption, in the context of the gospel promise, tells us that even. The, the gospel isn't couched in terms of obedience and rules. But when the gospel changes us, we then have the desire to be obedient and we see the value of good rules. So look back at Exodus 20. Exodus 22 again says, I am the Lord thy God. I am Yahweh Elohim, which have brought thee out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. That is gospel. That is good news. There's no do this at that point. It's just God declaring what he's done. But again, we need to understand this covenantly so let's not be confused. Because Yahweh's deliverance of Israel from Egypt, which logically took place before the giving of the law in Exodus uh, Matthew 
in Exodus 20 on Mount Sinai was both a true deliverance in time and also a type of the deliverance, the, the eschatological deliverance that is given to us in salvation. Israel, as the people of God, were slaves in Egypt. That's a historical fact. There's no denying that at all. There's no need to. And they couldn't rescue themselves. They needed Yahweh Elohim to do it for them. And the same is true for the sinner who was a slave to his sin. And so God, because of his covenant promises that existed for the purpose of eventually revealing the covenant of grace, the new covenant in Christ, he covenants with Abraham and responds to that covenant to, pers- to preserve Israel, who is the people of Abraham, and redeem them from their slavery in Egypt. Israel's time in Egypt ends up being this vivid picture of the slavery that God's people in every generation experience with sin. Sin is a cruel taskmaster, much more evil and punishing than Pharaoh or any of his generals ever could be. And so God, because of his covenant promises made in the covenant of grace to redeem people, to save people, ends up also then entering into a covenant with a man named Abraham and thereby Israel. And here at this point, Israel is in trouble. They are in slavery. They're in bondage. And he redeems Israel at this time from Egypt because in the future, the Messiah will come from this people. And here in Exodus 20, he reveals to them his moral law, which always existed. And this has a twofold reason even. For one, the moral law in cooperation, again, I mentioned this a little bit, the moral law in cooperation with the civil law and the ceremonial laws in Israel, which if we're thinking about these laws, these civil and ceremonial laws, we can never, couldn't list them all tonight and go through them now, but they are what we would call positive laws, meaning that they can be abrogated. They can be ended. They, and we would say that they did end for the nation of Israel. Right? Like how come we don't have to slay a goat every uh, Sabbath? It's because Christ fulfilled that. And so those are abrogated. How come you're able to have mixed clothing? It's because those laws have been abrogated. They did not say they were bad or that they were definitely good. They were all moral when they were given, but they were specifically for the nation, uh, the nation of Israel. And so the moral law, in cooperation with the civil and ceremonial laws, um, they set up terms for temporal blessing and cursing in the land as Israel is his covenant people, as they were unique from the rest of the world. They are a type of the saved, Israel was at that point in that regard, though they weren't all saved themselves. And so if Israel, and especially if the kings in Israel, who served in a representation role in the kingdom, obeyed the law, Israel enjoyed blessing in the land rather than curse. They enjoyed favor from God uh, because of their obedience. But when they rebelled, they brought upon themselves curses and punishment and judgment. And that all happened according to God's plan to bring about the greater promise of the blessing of the new covenant, the covenant of grace. And then secondly, the law was given here to show in what manner Adam fell in the garden and how the second Adam would then be faithful. The second Adam being Christ Jesus, that promised Messiah. And many in Israel would be confused at this point, and they would teach that keeping this law made them worthy of salvation. Again, see the rich young ruler, for example. But that was never the intent of the giving of the law here in Exodus 20 and the re-giving of it in Deuteronomy 6. For one, it was impossible to have salvation that way for them because they had all fallen out of. And so people are incapable from the start of meriting salvation through obedience to the law. And two, God's standard is perfection. And to sin in the least point of the law is to be guilty of all of it, James says. So the revealed moral law in Israel 
was to also serve in that same threefold function it serves in the church today as well. It should have drove Israelites to look towards the Messiah for salvation. It restrained evil in their community, and it gave those who were truly saved among them a guide by which to live. I mean, when you think of reads through the Psalms, how much they say they love God's law uh, over and over, Psalm 119 especially, that is a redeemed person's view of God's law, showing him uh, how it is that he should live and engage in life in honor of his Lord and Savior. So we have to see the law in a covenant context to not be confused. If a person who isn't saved, a person who is not redeemed by Christ, united to him in his life, death, and resurrection, if they try to keep the law of God without having that effort stem from a love of Christ, a love of Christ that originated because Christ first loved them, then they are essentially placing themselves in the old covenant, a covenant that, properly speaking, does not exist. That covenant served its purpose, and the Messiah was born into creation, born of a virgin, and he was faithful to all of the laws that God gave Israel. He had no sin in him, no guile, no transgression, and yet he went to the cross to pay a penalty that he did not owe. He died to pay the penalty that Adam, the first man, merited, and that we all merit as well. For the elect of mankind, those predestined and chosen in Christ from before the foundation of the world, he died specifically for them, and he didn't stay dead. He was risen bodily, and he ascended to heaven with the promise to come again and consummate his kingdom, to usher in the eternal age. And in time, the time appointed by God, Acts thirteen forty eight, that work of Christ is applied to individuals, and when that happens, we are free to live as we ought in obedience to God Almighty, and praise God because of the redemption he has given to us, we can now look at his law as a means by which we should live to honor and glorify him. And, that's, and when that's the case, the preface to the Ten Commandments teaches us something. The answer is in question 49. Says, what does the preface to the Ten Commandments teach us? So the answer, the preface to the Ten Commandments teaches us that because God is our Lord, or is the Lord, and our God and Redeemer, Therefore, we are bound to keep all his commandments. When we are saved, we are numbered among those that God has redeemed. And it is our joy and our delight to keep his commandments. We don't do it perfectly, but we labor to obey so that we can glorify and enjoy our Lord. I mean, you know this. If you're a Christian in the room tonight, when you are engaging and indulging your sin, are you enjoying God at that point? you're not you're most likely you have a you have a conscience that is convicted and you want to repent and turn from that but when you are faithfully walking and the law serves as your guide on that path you are enjoying god at that point again we don't do it perfectly but when god sets us free we aren't just free to live however we think is right we would never be happy if that was the case but we're free to live how we should and the law shows us that way. The verses cited with the catechism instruct us in holiness. They're fine additions, I think. But rather than read them and speak about them, especially for the sake of time, here, let me close with what the Second London Baptist Confession says. This is from the 19th chapter, which is on the law of God. And I think it sums up what we've been talking about this evening as well. This is paragraph 6 from the Confession. It says this, True believers are not under the law as a covenant of works, to be justified or condemned by it. 
Yet, it is very useful to them and to others as a rule of life that informs them of the will of God and their duty. It directs and obligates them to live according to its precepts. It also exposes the sinful corruptions of their natures, heart, and lives. As they examine themselves in the light of the law, they come to further conviction of, humiliation for, and hatred of sin, along with a clearer view of their need for Christ and the perfection of his obedience. The law is also useful to the regenerate to restrain their corruptions because it forbids sin. The punishment threatened by the law shows them what even their sins deserve and what troubles they may expect in this life due to their sin, even though they are freed from the curse and undiminished severity of it. The promises of the law likewise show them God's approval of obedience and the blessings that they may expect when they keep it, even though these blessings are not owed to them by the law as a covenant of works. If people do good and refrain from evil because the law encourages good and discourages evil, that does not indicate that they are under the law and not under grace. So I like the way that the, the London Baptist Confession sums that up. And truth be told, um, the very things that paragraph six mentioned, that I, the details that we just that I just read to you guys, we'll consider a lot of those things as we go over the Ten Commandments. Because what the Catechism does over these next. Um, well, for 40 questions or so, is it, it poses what is, the, what is the commandment, what do we learn from the commandment, what does the commandment um, positively teach, and what does the commandment uh, forbid as well. And so we'll see all these things in detail in light of the Ten Commandments. We have the Ten Commandments, the Ten Words from God, but they imply much more than what is on the surface. So looking forward to getting to that. Let me pray, and then um, if we have any questions, comments, we can talk about those. Our Father in heaven, we are so grateful to you for the gospel, Lord, that we don't have to earn our way before you because we know that you are perfect and what you demand is perfection and a standard of righteousness and holiness that we were never able to make from the start because we inherited um, death and a fallen nature from Adam, our first covenant head, but we thank you for giving to us a better, a greater covenant head, a, a, a perfect federal head in Christ Jesus, your beloved son, who kept the law for us. When we think of your law now, Lord, it is not a burden to us. It is, it is not heavy to us. Uh, it is our joy to be able to, to see it and to seek to obey it. Lord, nevertheless, we know that strength to do such things in ourselves does not exist. We need grace from you. And so we pray that you would help us, Lord, to remember the gospel motivation that we have when we approach your law and help us, God, to honor you with our lives, knowing that the very life we have is from you and you are worthy of being glorified. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> okay. So any questions or comments anything i could try to clear up if needed so i didn't want to get to motivation technically because i i haven't read anything about it but i mean what i have heard is that they want to justify um the use of icons and images in in their worship Right, so when we think of the reform stance on the second commandment, and we say that it says no making of any carved image of any likeness of heaven on earth, we mean to say that that is also applied to of God 
as well. And so, you know, we don't have Jesus on our cross, not only because he's not on the cross and he's risen and he's ascended, but also because we find that to be a violation of what God's law says, because we can't worship God through um, images. I think John is set to teach on that commandment. So I'll have a bunch of questions for him if he doesn't uh, <laughs> say what he, what, um, what I think I would say. But I, I think, so my my guess and what I've heard a little bit before is that it was because so that they can worship through icons and imagery. I don't know if that's true or not. Uh, Augustine is really solid. You know, I mean, our doctrine of what we call Calvinism and predestination and um, the doctrines of grace, really, those existed in Augustine. You know, even though he was a Roman Catholic, uh, he was he had some errors, of course, but it was, it's weird to know that he is the one who actually changed it to that. Yeah. Oh yeah. Absolutely. The, the Lutherans have the same commandment breakdown as the Roman Catholic Church, and they do see value of worshiping through art. If you think of like, I think it was called the iconoclasm or something like that, where the reformers went through like in Switzerland and they just destroyed all of these artifacts. Well, the Lutherans in Germany, they were like, no, no, don't do that. They appreciated art. And it's not to say that the, I don't think, I don't want to say the reform don't appreciate art. I think that they do. They just don't want, they want to be careful to worship God in the way that God wants to be worshipped. So we get back to the regular principle versus the normative principle of worship. Lutherans tend to fall under the normative principle of worship, and the use of images falls in line with that. Whereas Reformed and... Well, okay, so this is the interesting thing. So if you if you combine Exodus 23 through 26 into one commandment, then it seems to say that only um, images which aren't God can be are, are prevented but then how do you deal with that with the golden calf <laughs> because the golden calf happens right then there so i've heard some people say that oh the protestant um commandment list is based off of exodus and the roman catholic list is based off of deuteronomy and that's just silly because they're literally the same list the only difference is in the deuteronomy list it mentions a little bit more about being delivered from egypt in correlation to the sabbath commandment but other than that they're like word for word the same but of course, there's no golden calf incident after the Deuteronomy uh, scene. So I don't know how. And if you look through the whole span of the Old Testament, when do you ever see Yahweh commissioning his people to worship him through a statue? And they did that. They did that for Baal and Asher. So I mean, that was common to the cult around them. Distinctly Jewish to not have to not do that. Right. The only culture that didn't have those. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. We'll get to you. Yeah. So, so I, so yeah, for speak from motivation aspect, I, I think that's it, but I don't know for sure. Yeah. Okay. Um, in the Ten Commandments, it says not to worship false idols. Right? You want to save this question for two weeks from now? No. Okay. But I'll forget it by then. <laughs> all right. But in the Catholic Church, there are all these. Okay, so here's the interesting thing too, right? And we worship and we pray. And I know. We worship 
Well, and they have all the uh, the artifacts too that you know they they definitely are worshiping through those. So here's the thing: it's funny. Or it's not funny. It's interesting because Eastern Orthodox Church they went back to the original viewing of breaking those first two commandments apart. Yet Eastern Orthodox churches they also have all that type of stuff too, right? And so I think what they say is the same type of thing as the Roman Catholic Church. They well, they, we venerate, which isn't worship. But I mean, you're just you're splitting hairs at that point. And maybe theologically, that's what the elders are trying to advocate for. But the common person, the parishioner, they're not seeing that distinction more often than not. So, um, yeah, I think it's a violation of the God of law. And so we, that's why we don't do that here, you know. And we're in step with a stream of brothers and sisters who would agree. But we're, you say that we're Catholic. Catholic in the sense that... Yeah, Catholic just means it's a it's from the Greek word ecclesia, right? It's it's a group of it's a called out ones. That's all Catholic means. Roman Catholic. It's just a group, it just means Christian. It means that we are people who follow Christ. Roman so when the Reformation happened, the church was just Christianity, right? There was there was church in the west and church in the east. And so you had orthodox people in the east, you had Catholics in the West, but the Anglicans, they didn't want to be known as that kind of Catholic. And so they, the Roman Catholic is technically a derogatory term. If you ever drive by um, a, a Roman Catholic church, you know, they never say Roman no, Catholic on them. Catholic. They don't. No, they don't. Yeah. St. Mary's Catholic church or whatever, but right. So we, so we identify them as Roman Catholic to say, hey, you're a specific type of Catholic, a Catholic that really we don't want anything to do with, a Catholic that we wish you'd repent from some of your positions for, specifically on justification, these other things we can work out with. Like, we don't condemn Lutherans for um, changing the order of the commandments. We think that they're still our brothers, uh, most of them. Like, the Missouri Synod is a good group of, uh, of Lutherans, but they're different than the Roman Catholic Church because the Roman Catholic Church dug their heels in on justification being not through Christ alone. Yeah, well, no, see, I mean, so if you say that, they're going to say, no, they don't. Yes, they do. I know, but I'm just saying, if you try to apologetically engage them, they're especially like a priest, they're going to say, we don't worship them. And they'll say that we worship we worship God through them. Well, that's still a stretch. And you still have to justify that by scripture. But they're going to, that's what they're going to want to say. And when we pray, we pray with I know. You don't have to have it. They have different saints. You know, I think I remember some, there's like a saint statue that you could put on your dashboard for driving. You had him. I don't know who that is. The um, the Roman Catholic Church right here, the house uh, that the priest lives in is owned, uh, that the church owns is right on the other side of Longview. And so if you go down that little court over there, I remember when we first moved in, we were sharing like, hey, we're new in the area, looking to meet people type of thing and we went to his house and he was a nice friendly guy or whatever but he had a bunch of those different saints on his quote unquote saints on his grass and for and again they're not they say they're not worshiping them but they're clearly using them to worship god and even that's a problem and many people do worship them unfortunately which is wrong so you're worshiping a false idol you are it is and so that's why we evangelize. That's in part why we evangelize Roman Catholics. You know, it doesn't mean that Roman Catholics can't be saved, or that some of them aren't presently living in a Roman Catholic context and 
aren't saved. Some it may be that some of them are, but we think then that God would pull them out of that eventually. Mike? Sorry. Sorry. The distinction between the law and the gospel. Could you also say uh, Yeah. Mm-hmm. If we're thinking of Exodus 22, declarative. Exodus 23, imperative. Followed by 4 through 6, all imperatives. You know? So that's a similar breakdown. Of saying, you know. In your studies for tonight's uh, lesson, did you come across any like attempts at justifying the splitting of the 10th commandment into two commandments? Nothing. That seems so arbitrary. Nothing. It's like, to, to, to not covet your neighbor's wife isn't even the first one in the list. It's in the middle. So they like plucked it out of the middle to make it the ninth commandment, and then they just lumped the rest of it together to make it ten. That just seems so synthetic. So I, my guess is that because Exodus thirty four twenty eight says these are the ten words I gave you, so they say we need to have ten. But yeah, but, but why separate that? Like it means I see a clearer distinction in saying you shall have no gods, no other gods, and then them with Niles. Yeah, that to me seems like a more distinct break. Yeah, about coveting. Because again, I think because, you know, Luther was an Augustinian monk. And so, and I mean, thankfully he was, because again, his study of Augustine. I know, right? Like the whole, as far as our doctrine of salvation goes, that was huge. But he didn't change there. Yeah, Stephen? So, um, you know, we talked about earning our place. I don't know how much you know about this, but, uh, like, you know, we know, like, Hebrew, Hebrew Israelites, they, they want to try to, uh, salvation is all Hebrew. But, you know, that, that weird group of the Western perfections, right? I know that they believe. Theology of glory. Plus, they, I don't think they ever, even the ones who advocated for perfectionism, I don't think they ever abandoned their, like, Arminian-type roots, where they said you couldn't fall away from it. You know, I don't think they ever thought that you could reach that perfection level, and then that's it. I think you could still fall away. And I've never met Wesley who's like, yep, I got it. I got this. So I mean, it might be one of those, like, unbeatable <laughs> levels. I was around the time of the Puritans in the United States, right? That was around that figure. I don't know if there's many of them around today. Maybe. I've never met one. Yeah, Brian. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. So it's more of a theological inference, right? Because in the garden, he, God gave him a command to not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. What's the point of that? So we don't see it in the text, right? But there's covenantal language there. Um, it's the exact same language that's used in his covenants with other people as well, too. And so the idea put forth, and this is a tangent, we, we've taught on this before in previous, because again, the catechism is systematic, it's building. But the idea is, I was careful to not say that Adam could have earned salvation for us because he didn't need to be saved or anything, but he could have earned eternal life as a reward for obedience. Now, who knows how long that he would have had to have gone in the garden? Like, I have no answer for that at all. What, did he have to last for a week, a uh, hundred years? How, Just to show down with the, the serpent. We don't know. Uh, it's theological inference by good and necessary consequence. Or consequence yeah. That's an interesting question. Yeah. Yeah, it's a contingible immortality um, because there's a contingent, it's contingent upon him being obedient or not. So we, I don't remember what catechism question this is, but I taught, I think it was me who taught on it. It was on the four um, states of mankind. And so in the garden, Adam is what we would call a state, a theologically speaking, a state of innocence in which he had the ability to either obey god or to sin against god and then of course you know the idea is if he would have just obeyed if he would have um resisted against that notion about the serpent implanted um then he would have won eternal life for everybody but after the fall mankind was able to sin and not able to not sin we're dead in our sins and then when a person is re the next state so that's the state of fallenness and there's a state of redemption which we're back to like how Adam was in the garden now, except for, you know, we have to deal with a, a nature that's already, uh, that was fallen. And so now Christians, I have the ability to sin and the ability to not sin, just like Adam did in the garden. And then in heaven, we'll have the ability to not sin and the ability to be sinless. I don't know. I, I messed up that. Second word, I think you misspoke a little bit. You said that we, after the fall, we have the ability to sin and not sin, but we actually only have the ability to sin. That's what I meant. Yeah, yeah, yeah. After the fall, we only have the ability to sin. Every even the even our righteousness is like filthy rags. Um, so, but then when we were saved as Christians, we're like Adam was in the garden. A little bit different because we have to contend with the fallen nature that he didn't have. His nature wasn't fallen. It was made upright. He was good. It was good. But that's that's the belief. So, it's a, so again, it's a covenant of works in the sense that Adam had to. He had something to work for, but. I know people debate about the the liking of that term or not, but yeah. Well, it's a little absolutely. Yeah, I agree with you on that. I think, yeah, the difference being those that Esau was already fallen in Adam. And so, so like, so really, the comparison is Adam and Christ, and Christ did work. Right. 
would you are you comfortable though with saying that Christ worked and earned salvation for us? That's the main. That's yeah. That's. You mean on the cross and his death there, right? Yeah, but it's also to his Christ's holy and his righteous life is our is what we are accredited to upon our regeneration. So that because not like we got we didn't get set to a clean state. When God views us, He views us as having the meritorious righteousness of Christ, who was perfectly obedient. So. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's, it's interesting to think about it some more because, like, if we say Christ earned it, but then I, to me, that makes me want to say, okay, I should be comfortable saying that Adam had something to earn, but he failed. He was, he was born to it, but he still had a moral obligation. That's there's still the possibility. Yeah, yeah. I don't think that possibility would have endured forever. No. Through the trial of the serpent, you've got this contingency where if you do not work to reject temptation. If you want to have a, if you want to have a fun conversation too, talk to a, talk to John Williams when you get a chance. <laughs> talk to John Williams. It was his right by birth, Esau. You're saying. That. Well, it enters into that relationship with Adam through specific covenant with terms, whereas Esau's inheritance is just born into it. It's not Romans 5. Romans 5, you mentioned today, I think, even, right? This morning. He didn't, yeah. I wish he did, yeah. Some of this is interesting to think about, even too, when we think of like we talked about this before, like the idea of a fortunate fall. Like Adam was never actually going to obey, anyways, because people were chosen, yeah, in Christ before the foundation of the world. And so that's what I would say. You could talk to John Williams. You want to talk something to talk your ear off about, like you know, the logical order of God's decrees before creation even happened. The, the, yeah. Okay. Well, he didn't earn, yeah. Uh, no, this is actually interesting because in our book that we went through on Opoma Robertson, where well, he wants to talk about Adam's state in the garden being gracious, and it was. Like, God didn't have to create Adam, right? So he didn't earn it in that sense. So if that's what you mean to say, Brian, I totally agree with you. That was a gracious engagement. Any of God's covenantal actions with people are gracious because God is not obliged to enter into a covenant with mankind at all. God is God. But apart, so. apart from disobedience, like, work is not a bad thing. Labor is beautiful. Oh, yeah. So the commands to obey, we're going to obey the Lord forever in heaven, but we'll be doing that in uh, an idealized state because of our glorification. Right. So, I'm not interested in that. I just want to look it up. Did he 
Okay. No, so that's so we're not covenant heads. So this so this is Romans five. I would encourage you to check you probably familiar with Romans five, but twelve to twenty four or twenty five, because it sets up Christ and Adam as these two covenant heads. And so no matter what, Adam and Christ are different than the rest of mankind because they are two covenant heads by which represent mankind. Oh you do, okay. I think that then we're really close to being in agreement then. Okay. Hey, thanks, Sam. Is that your hand back there? You sure? Yeah, Stephen? Yeah, I do. Yeah. I mean, even if even if you don't want to agree with that, you may you may not agree that the probation period, right, Brad? But uh, would you? Well, yeah, I'm saying. So, yeah. but if, if you believe in the probationary period, you got to earn your way through that period. Right? Is that what you know? Yeah. Yeah. Maybe the word. Or how about one? Would would one work? I don't know. Because like Christ won the elect by his you know, defeat of death. Adam could have won eternal life for everyone had he obeyed. Christ won eternal life for us through his obedience, which also entailed salvation as well. Yeah, Ross? Before the foundation of the world, we were elected. Why would we even try to muddle through this discussion? for there to have been Adam earning anything because it has implications upon what we believe about the gospel essentially and so he's saying right now that he believes everything about Christ winning that and earning it which is good but I think not everybody comes to that necessary, that conclusion as well that's how I would say it. Yeah, Felix Culpa, right? Um, these are, yeah, we're dealing hypotheticals sometimes. We do that. Uh, there's, see, part of the thing is this really is philosophy, right? And a philosophy is, and I think we push against it, but we shouldn't. It's It has a place in Christian theology, so it's good to talk about. Although I think Luther has a funny... He has a funny quote where I think he says that for people who want to debate over the lapsarian views, he says that like there's a special you know, place in hell for those people. As, no, that's Martin Luther. Martin Luther could you know get away with those things because there wasn't no Twitter back then, I guess. Anything else, guys? Oops, enjoy spending time with you tonight. <laughs>